Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're going to turn to the book of Revelation. Boys and girls, make sure that you're turning up the Bible as well. We're going to read from the last book of the Bible and the last couple of chapters, Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. In just a moment, you're going to go out to snack, but before you go out to snack, we're going to sing a song called Countdown, which is all about the heaven that God is preparing for us. And what we're going to read from the Bible now is what the Bible says about what heaven will be like. So we're going to read Revelation 21. We're going to start at verse 1, and we're going to read down to chapter 22, verse 5. It is quite a long reading, but there's lots about heaven in these verses. So it's on page 1041 over into 1042 of the Pew Bibles. And we're going to read from Revelation 21, verse 1 down to Revelation 22, verse 5. So, boys and girls, you ready? We start our reading. This is God's word to us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the, the, one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a, high, a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel's, Israel were inscribed. On the, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, 
the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is like the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the, the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us. Well, at this point in our service, we're going to think about the Bible together. I'm going to try and answer this big question, what does the Bible say about heaven? Uh, this is part two. Last week was part one. Uh, tonight is part two. And you'll find it very helpful to turn up Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, you'll find it on page, pages 1041 over into page uh, 1042. And as you're turning that passage up, uh, let's pray for a moment together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we have read about the glories of heaven. And tonight, as we think about more specific questions about what heaven will be like and what we'll do there, we pray that you would fill our hearts with hope and that you would encourage us. Help us to see that our life in this world is only the cover page of the eternity to come. And help us to realize as well that the countdown to Jesus' return is getting lower every day and that we need to be prepared. Help us to think about this issue tonight. Be with us by your Spirit, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we're thinking about heaven again. Last week was part one of what does the Bible say about heaven. Tonight is part two. Tonight we're going to be dealing with more specific questions about what heaven will be like. Uh, last week we saw that heaven will have no more corruption, no more death or tears, and no more longings. Uh, the truths that we thought about last week are really the foundations, the, the, the groundworks, if you like, for what we're going to be thinking about tonight. Uh, we can't build a rounded biblical picture without thinking about what we thought about last week. As I said last Sunday, this was one of the most asked questions by our young people at the Vibe Weekend. Uh, I got 28 questions and... Uh, Nine out of 28 uh, were, were about heaven or re were related to heaven. 
There's a lot of confusion about what heaven will be like, and nine of those questions are perhaps a result of some of that confusion. But what those nine questions remind us of is that God has set eternity in our hearts. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us. He tells us he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Whether we know it or not, whether we remember it or not, whatever age we are, there is in all of us a sense that life in this world is not all that there is and that there is something waiting for us after we die. The the sense that we'll live forever somewhere has shaped every civilization in human history. Uh, Australian Aborigines picture heaven as a distant island beyond the western horizon. Uh, The early Finns thought it was an island in the faraway east. Mexicans, Peruvians, Polynesians believed that they went to the sun or moon after death. Native Americans believed that in the afterlife their spirits would hunt the spirits of buffalo. The Gilgamesh epic, an ancient Babylonian legend, refers to a resting place of of heroes and hints at a tree of life. In the pyramids of Egypt, the embalmed bodies had maps placed beside them as guides to the future world. The Romans believed that the righteous would picnic in the Elysian fields while their horses grazed nearby. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, said, The day thou fearest as the last is the birthday of eternity. Although depictions of the afterlife differ, the unifying testimony of the human heart throughout history is belief in life after death. Every culture has a God-given innate sense of the eternal, that this world is not all that there is. And as Christians, we stand apart from all other cultures, all other religions, in that we say that our relationship with the person who has died on our behalf means that one day we will go to the place that he has prepared for us. Eternity has been set in our heart, and if we're trusting in Jesus, then we have the hope of heaven to look forward to. In 1952, Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off off Cantalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She was already the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother, in a boat alongside, told her that she was close and that she could make it and that she should keep going. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until that she was in the boat that she discovered that the shore was less than half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. For Christians, that shore is Jesus and being with him in the place that he promised to prepare for us, where we will live with him forever. What we're going to do tonight is look through the fog to see more of our eternal home. And as we do that, I hope it'll comfort us and energize us in living for Christ in this world. What we're going to do tonight is very simple. We're going to try and answer some questions. Our structure tonight is that I have four questions, four answers, and a conclusion. The four questions, I hope, summarize the nine questions that were asked in the Vibe Weekend. And these questions will help us think about heaven 
in a more specific way. So here's the first question. What is the new Jerusalem? What is the new Jerusalem? We heard that phrase in our Bible reading, but what is the new Jerusalem? Heaven is called and referred to many things, and one of the most common terms used is the new Jerusalem. What, what, what is the new Jerusalem, though? Well, the Bible describes heaven as both a country, in Luke 19, verse 12, Hebrews 11, and also as a city, Hebrews 12, 22, and then Revelation 21, verse 2. Our reading tonight came from Revelation 21 and 22, and 15 times in the reading, the place God and his people will live together in is called a city. The, the, the repetition of the word and the detailed description of the architecture, walls, streets, and other features of the city suggests that the term city isn't just a figure of speech, but a literal geographical location. Uh, everyone knows what a city is, a place with buildings, streets, and residences occupied by people and subject to a common government. For some absurd reason, Bangor was made a city last week. I'm not just saying this to please you, but... How is Bangor a city and Ballymena isn't? I just, I mean, I just don't know. I, I don't mean to rub it in, but Newry is a city and Ballymena isn't. And I'm not really sure how that has happened either. But we all know what a city is. C- cities have inhabitants, visitors, bus- bu- bustling activity, cultural events and, and gatherings involving music, the arts, education, religion, entertainment and athletics. If the capital city of the new earth doesn't have these defining characteristics of a city, it would be misleading for scripture to repeatedly call it a city. The dimensions of the new Jerusalem, of, the, of God's city, are mentioned in Revelation 21, verses 15 and 16. You'll see that it says, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Now, there's a debate as to whether or not these dimensions are literal or figurative. Uh, Either way, we don't need to worry about heaven, heaven being too crowded. If those figures are literal, then the New Jerusalem will be able to hold billions of people. If they're figurative, and I'm more inclined to say that they are, the picture is still encouraging. The home of God's people will be extremely large and roomy. As Revelation 21, 12 and 13 tells us, the the city also has a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates and on the west three gates. A city's gates were important because they defended a city from enemy invaders. Typically, the gates of a city were shut tight at night to keep danger out. Even Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, closes its gates at night. But Revelation 21-25 tells us that the New Jerusalem's gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Why can the gates remain open? Because the city's 12 gates are attended by 12 angels and because there will be no enemies outside the city's gates. All enemies of the kingdom will be forever cast into the lake of fire, far away from the new earth. As country people, it's hard for us to get excited about the new Jerusalem because we maybe don't love cities. 
I don't love going down to Belfast. The air isn't as pure as it is in Buckna. But the new Jerusalem, God's heavenly city, will be different. It will have all the advantages we associate with earthly cities, but none of the disadvantages. So the city will be filled with natural wonders, magnificent architecture, thriving culture, but it will have no crime, no pollution, no sirens, no traffic accidents, no rubbish, no vermin, no homelessness. It will be heaven on earth. So that's our first question and answer. What is the new Jerusalem? The Bible's testimony is that it's God's perfect city. Will we be ourselves in the new Jerusalem? Well, that's our second question. Will we be ourselves? In Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge was terrified when he saw a phantom. Uh, the, the, The dialogue goes like this. Scrooge says, who are you? And the ghost replies, ask me who I was. Who were you then, says Scrooge? In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Disembodied spirits, phantoms, ghosts, aren't who they once were. Continuity of identity ultimately requires bodily resurrection. Unless we grasp the resurrection, we won't believe that we'll continue to be ourselves in the afterlife. We are physical beings. If the eternal heaven is a disembodied state, then our humanity will either be better or worse, and we won't be ourselves after we die. But the testimony of the scriptures is that we will be ourselves in heaven. In Job 19, 26 and 27, Job says, In my flesh I will see God, I and not another. In Luke 24, 39, the risen Lord Jesus said, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus called people in heaven by name, including Lazarus in the present heaven and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the eternal heaven. A name points to a distinct identity and individual. The fact that people in heaven can be called by the same name they had on earth demonstrates that they remain the same people. So in heaven, I will be Stephen Kennedy without the bad parts forever. If you know Jesus, you will be you forever without the bad parts. Just as our genetic code and fingerprints are unique now, we should expect the same of our new bodies. Individual identity is an essential aspect of our personhood. God is the creator of individual identities and personalities. He makes no snowflakes the same, and he doesn't make two people the same. Not even identical twins are identical. Individuality came before the curse of sin. Individuality was God's plan from the beginning. We will definitely be ourselves in heaven. C.S. Lewis summarizes this thought very well in his book, The Problem of Pain. I'm going to give you quite a long quote, but hopefully it'll help you understand that we will be ourselves in heaven. Lewis says this. He says, if he, God, had no use for all these differences, I do not see why he should have created more souls than one. Your soul has a curious shape because it is a hollow made to fit a particular swelling in the infinite contours of the divine substance or a key to unlock one of the doors in the house with many mansions. For it is not humanity in the abstract that is to be saved, but you, the individual reader, John Stubbs or Janet Smith, 
And this is the important part of the quote. Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it. Made for it stitch by stitch as a glove is made for a hand. We will be ourselves in the new Jerusalem, God's perfect city. We won't become angels. Sometimes you hear people say of someone who has died, heaven has gained another angel. That's especially said when children die. It's not a biblical way of speaking. Death is a relocation of the same person from one place to another. The place changes, but the person remains the same. The same person who becomes absent from his or her body becomes present with the Lord. Angels are angels. Humans are humans. Angels are beings with their own histories and memories with distinct identities. We won't be angels. We will be ourselves. So what is the new Jerusalem? It's a city. It's God's perfect city. Will we be ourselves? Yes, in heaven I will be Stephen Kennedy without the bad parts forever. And if you know Jesus, you'll be you without the bad parts forever as well. What, what will our daily lives be like? That, that's our third question. Well, our daily lives in heaven will involve at least two things. They will involve rest and work. First of all, rest. When God created the world, he rested on the seventh day. That's the basis for the biblical Sabbath, when all people and animals rested. In the Old Testament, God set aside days and weeks of rest, and he even rested the earth itself every seventh year. This is the rest that we can anticipate on the new earth, times of, of joyful praise and relaxed fellowship. Our lives in heaven will include rest. Re- Revelation fourteen thirteen is a verse that we're familiar with, and it has comfort, comforted many of our hearts in difficult times. But we read, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. But part of our inability to appreciate the rest we'll enjoy in heaven is our failure to enter into a weekly day of rest now. We never stop. By rarely turning our attention from our responsibilities, we fail to anticipate our coming deliverance from sin to a full rest. There's nothing quite as satisfying as putting your head on the pillow after a hard day's work. In the same way, it, it, it'll be satisfying to rest after a hard life's work. But rest is good, and God has built it into his creation and his law. After all, Jesus said that all those who come to him will be given rest. Come, all you who are heavy laden and who labor, for I will give you rest. Our daily lives in heaven will involve rest. Rest after a hard life's work. But, but, but our daily lives will also involve work. Now, the idea of working in heaven is foreign to many people, but the Bible clearly teaches it. When God created Adam, he took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work was part of the original Eden. It was part of a perfect human life on earth. Work wasn't part of the curse of sin. The curse of sin made work difficult and tedious and boring and frustrating but work will be transformed in heaven. It will be transformed into what God intended it to be. Revelation 22 verse 3 tells us that in heaven, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, 
and his servants will worship him. Serve is the key word in that verse. Serve is a verb. Servants are people who are active and occupied, who carry out tasks. God himself is a worker. He didn't create the world and then retire. Jesus found great satisfaction in his work too. And we'll also have work to do, satisfying and enriching work that we can't wait to get back to, work that will never be drudgery. Now, what kind of work will we do in heaven? It's an interesting question to ask. Well, one person puts it memorably like this. Maybe you'll build a cabinet with Joseph of Nazareth or with Jesus. Maybe you'll tend sheep with David, discuss medicine with Luke, sew with Dorcas, make clothes with Lydia, design a new tent with Paul or Priscilla, write a song with Isaac Watts, ride horses with John Wesley, or sing with Keith Getty. Maybe you'll write a theology of the Trinity, bouncing your thoughts off Paul, John, Polycarp, Cyprian, Augustine, Calvin, Wesley, and even Jesus himself. We will work and we will rest in heaven. Well, what will our daily lives be like? They'll involve at least two things, rest and work. What is the new Jerusalem? What will we be ourselves? What will our daily lives be like in heaven? Fourth question, final question. Will we know family members and friends in heaven? This was the most common question about heaven from our young people. Will we know family members and friends in heaven? In heaven, we will spend time with people we knew and loved here on earth. So the simple answer to the question is yes. Receiving a glorified body and relocating to the new earth doesn't erase history. It culminates history. Nothing will change the fact that we were members of families on the old earth. My daughters and my son will always be my daughters and my son. Resurrection bodies presumably have chromosomes and DNA with a signature that forever testifies to our genetic connection with family. Heaven won't be without families, but will be one big family in which all family members are friends and all friends are family members. We'll have family relationships with people who were our blood family on earth, but we'll also have family relationship with our friends, both old and new. We can't take material things with us when we die, but we do take our friendships to heaven, and one day they'll be renewed. Many of us treasure our families, but some of us have endured a lifetime of brokenheartedness stemming from difficult family relationships. In heaven, neither we or our family members will cause pain. Our relationships will be harmonious, what what we've longed for. Last week, I finished by quoting from C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle. It's the last book in his Chronicles of Narnia series, as well as finishing The Last Battle in a very memorable way. Lewis also writes about wonderful reunions in Aslan's country, which includes the new Narnia. Character after character from the earlier stories reappears, many of them last seen centuries or millennia earlier. Reepicheep, Puddleglum, Rillian, Caspian, Trumpkin, Bree, Mr. Tumnus, and countless others, they all reappear. They're together again, many of them meeting for the first time. Lucy and the other children are just thrilled to see them. The reunions and and the introductions go on and on, and as you read them, You don't want them to stop. When everyone parted by death is restored to life, 
in familiar resurrected bodies on a familiar resurrected world and in the very presence of their beloved Aslan. It, it's contagiously thrilling. It's a beautiful picture of heaven. For us, the ultimate reunion will be followed by endless adventures together. We will have many temporary partings followed by absolutely certain reunions. But never again will there be the separation of death with its suffering and sorrow. Never again will we wonder if we'll see those who we love. Jesse Ryle, a Christian minister who lived just over 100 years ago, wrote this. He said, Those whom you led in the grave with many tears are in good keeping. You will yet see them again with joy. Believe it, think it, rest on it. It is all true. Those whom you led in the grave with many tears are in good keeping. You will yet see them again with joy. What is the new Jerusalem? It's a city. It's God's perfect city. Will we be ourselves? Yes, in heaven I will be Stephen Kennedy without the bad parts forever. What will our daily lives be like in heaven? We will rest and we will work among other things. What will our daily, we've done that one, what will our daily lives be like? Will we know family members and friends in heaven? Yes, absolutely. And there will be great joy when we are reunited with them. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. That's what Florence Chadwick said on her field swim. It's what we've tried to do this evening, see the shore. Well, what do we need to do in light of all that we've considered? Well, if we know and love the Lord Jesus, then all that we've thought about tonight should reorient us. It should help us to realize that this earth is not our home and that we are being prepared for, for life in our true home. Everything that we experience now is a foretaste of what is to come. Let me quote C.S. Lewis again. I promise this is the last Lewis quote this evening. But this is a really helpful quote which should help you reorientate your heart from the things of this world to spiritual, eternal things. Lewis says, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. The things of this world, the things in our lives, snow us under and take us away from contemplating what is ahead of us. So often we get buried in the mess of this world, the mess of our sin, the mess of the sins of others, the mess of this world. But we must never get snowed under or turned aside. It should be our greatest desire to press on towards the goal, that place that Jesus is preparing for us. Now here on earth, we should be astounded that God has saved us, that he will never leave us, and that one day we will be with him forever. John Newton, the hymn writer, said, when I get to heaven, I shall see three wonders there. The first wonder will be to see many whom I did not expect to see, the second wonder will, to be, will, will be to miss many people who I did expect to see. The third and greatest of all will be to find myself there. The third wonder should fill our hearts tonight. One day we will be in heaven with God forever because of Jesus. What if you're here tonight? What if you're watching online 
and you don't know and love the Lord Jesus? Well, what, what if you're not trusting in him? Where, where, where does all of this land for you? Well, well, well in a simple way, that this is what you're going to miss out on. The perfection of God's heaven, the brilliance of the new Jerusalem, the beauty of a resurrected body. The, the simple and clear testimony of the Bible is that all those who trust in Jesus will go to be with him forever. But it's also that all those who don't trust in Jesus will be separated from God for all eternity. That's summarized by our closing hymn tonight. We've had a couple of hymns, we have a couple of hymns to go before we get to it. But our closing hymn, our closing carol tonight is from the squalor of a borrowed stable. Part of the final verse goes like this. Then the skies will part as the trumpet sounds hope of heaven or the fear of hell. That, that's the choice before you tonight. The hope of heaven, to have that hope that will, to have that hope will mean that you're trusting in Jesus. That, that there is no other way to get to heaven. You can only enter by trusting in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. The hope of heaven or the fear of hell, a place of endless torment, a place of endless sadness, a place of endless longing, a place of endless darkness. When the skies part and when the trumpet sounds, or when you are called before God in judgment, what will it be? The hope of heaven or the fear of hell? Whether we know it or not, whether we remember it or not, whatever age we are, there is in all of us a sense that life in this world is not all that there is and that there is something after we die. It is, as the writer of Ecclesiastes said, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Let's pray for a moment together. Father, we thank you for your word and for all that it tells us about heaven. We pray that as Christians tonight, that we wouldn't get snowed under or turned aside from the great hope that is before us. Help us to make the main object of our lives pressing on to being in heaven with Jesus. Help us to live for him. Help us to honor him. Help us to sit at his feet and to listen to him. And we pray for those who don't yet know Jesus, that they might come to see that heaven is a beautiful place that you've prepared for us and that missing out on that is something that they do not want to experience. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you continue with us through the rest of our time together. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.